Phoebe. Together, we are Feminine Chaos. Thank you for joining us. Phoebe, what are we talking about today? So I sent you um, some notes for this conversation, and I titled it the Post-Valentine's Hangover Edition, because it's kind of like, it's a little bit, we're talking about love. We are. Which only, it's it's a little known fact, it only happens in Brooklyn and in certain neighborhoods of literary Brooklyn. Love? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh. Romantic love, at least, and sex. Those those things only happen in that little little bit of Brooklyn. What do you do in Canada in lieu of romantic love and sex? That is a good question. So basically, when it gets very, very snowy, people are cut in half and replicate that way. So that provides new people. Like worms? Yeah, exactly. Cool. Like worms. That's how we do it in Canada. <laughs> how does it work in Connecticut? Or do you have to just commute into Brooklyn, I guess? Oh, you, you can, but it's, it takes actually a pretty long time to get to Brooklyn from Connecticut. So what we do is um, there's, this, there's this thing that fancy people in Connecticut do. It's called polo. Uh, it involves riding <laughs> horses with croquet mallets. I, I sort of don't really understand it much better than that. But what's important is when a polo match is finished, there are all of these divots in the grass and the women folk go out and they stomp the divots. They stomp the divots back into the grass. And that's where babies come from. Lovely. And they well, come out of the divots. This has been very educational for us both. It has. Um, I don't know about the recreational aspects of things. Maybe that's just, I think that might just be a Brooklyn specific. Um, right. Well, I mean, I assume in Canada, it's just, it's all Eskimo kissing. I think that that's considered the wrong term but i don't know whether you're allowed to what i don't know whether you're supposed to switch it to that it's inuit kissing or just nose kissing So that's bullshit it's eskimo kissing it will always okay. be eskimo kissing well i'm gonna be thrown out of canada for having even discussed this but in the meantime <laughs> we are going to talk about first up is the question that um daisy alioto put on the dirt uh is it a newsletter is it a magazine it is a website of some sort um called the desire question is it better to desire or be desired and uh i guess there's some like i don't know it's some tech thing where you can like send people this question i don't know why it's different from if you just emailed them the question but whatever i don't care about the computer aspect of it but a bunch of people including um writers who i like like um isabel sloan and katie kelleher and a bunch of others um answered this question Catherine D was on there. I noticed. Oh yes, yes, a lot of a lot of um, who's who. Mm-hmm. Um, is it better to desire having been asked to participate on this or to anyway? Um, but I was not asked to participate. Me neither. Should so. we feel snubbed? I feel extremely snubbed. And on Valentine's Day too. Oh, this is so bad. I know. <laughs> so yeah, I thought this was interesting, and the verdict pretty much seems to be desire is it's better to desire than to be desired, according to the bulk of the uh, participants seems to be yeah that's what she says that's what it looks like from skimming it I did not like plug it into a spreadsheet it's it's boring in Canada but not that boring <laughs> not done that. besides you had you had uh, asexual reproduction to engage I in. did have that to do yes I mean I just skimming it I noticed that there yeah desire seemed to win out and I think rightfully so the people who were arguing in favor of to be desired, well, I don't want to. I don't want to generalize because maybe this isn't true. But I felt like that was an answer specific to younger women, possibly, mm-hmm. and also 
that it was rooted in a sense that like it, you know, it's it's worse to desire somebody who doesn't desire you. So people were really focused on the idea of unrequited love, basically. But why is that bad? I think that's. I mean, I am in favor. I think I think that's fine. I mean, to a point, but yeah. Yeah, I guess it depends. It's like I don't know. I mean, I, I'm I'm saying this all from you know the like contented position of being happily married. So it's like if I happen to desire someone from within the confines of my marriage, it's not like I'm going to do anything about that anyway. So it's just like yeah, you know, like. But if you were in Park Slope, <laughs> <laughs> we're not talking about that yet. That's that's the that's a yes, different episode. It's a little, a little teaser, a little teaser. Yes, where I were I in Brooklyn where the sex and the romance happens perhaps I would be a, a polyamorous worm um I would stomp I would stomp <laughs> multiple divots instead of just the one that I'm married to um <laughs> but, but yeah you know there's but there's this sort of overarching sense amongst the people who say that it's better to be desired that like it's a terrible thing to to yearn for someone who you can't have or who doesn't yearn for you back and I get that to a certain extent but um I I was thinking about this maybe too philosophically and I think that to desire things um I mean and not just people but to I don't know to desire anything to like be able to kind of inculcate that um that feeling inside of you is to be kind of alive to possibility in a way that is exciting and um that makes a person feel like kind of I don't know it feels like the fullest expression of your humanity whereas to be desired i mean like that can be nice you know in the in a sense of like yeah i still got it which is sometimes nice to feel especially as i am you know advancing in middle age but I don't know, you're not going to pay your rent with it and it's not going to enrich your life particularly. Um, All it does is, I mean, I think in like the worst cases foment a certain amount of anxiety because like, you know, what happens when people stop desiring you? If like, if that's the better thing, it's got an expiration date on it. Whereas desire, you can want stuff your entire life. Absolutely. Um, Yes, yes. And but yes, and I will, <laughs> yes, and you, as usual. Um, so many things on this. Where to begin? So, I mean, this is super gendered, and there's this kind of myth that women just desire being desired. The cat person thing. I was thinking yes, about that, so too. so this is really entrenched. I don't want to, like, overly scoop a book that I'm writing. But, uh, yeah, basically, this is, like, considered very central to female sexuality, to female desire is, like, for the man to find you beautiful is everything. This is in cat person. You see it all over the place. It drove me nuts when I read cat person and I read all, then all of these takes that were like, this is what it is to be a woman. And I have literally like not experiences. I cannot imagine it. I cannot imagine thinking like this. This is not how my mind works. It just like, I could identify with like having gone on dates with guys who weren't great sometimes, like sure on that level. But the the specific thing of like that encounter where she's, she's, the lady and cat person who's a college student is in bed with this guy who um, she imagines finds her magnificent because he's a bit older and schlumpy and she's, you know, 20, which is inherently exciting, whatever. And she just, she's really leaning into it. An interesting little side note about cat person is that its author is her partner is a woman. So her, which I wonder if that has anything to do with her depictions of man, woman, sex, 
sort of bracketing that question now. Oh, maybe she she needed a heterosexual sensitivity reader, but <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm volunteering for that. No, but I mean, I think that this idea that what a woman would be thinking about is how beautiful she is or how alluring she is and not looking at the man and what, yeah, that just seems very um, interesting because it's not, it was not that this was represented as, and here's this innovative queer take on something. No, this was supposed to be, well, this is how women feel. Of course, this is how women feel. And another illustration of this um, is, did you know? That, so I read Emily Retajkowski's My Body. Good for you. Thank you. <laughs> and there's a detail in it that she has like mirrors on her ceiling or something. I just remember thinking like, of course she does. Anyway, um, like in her be- in her bedroom ceiling. I'm really preoccupied with the question of which position you would have intercourse in better to like use the mirror on your ceiling. Like, what are you looking at? In I the think, mirror? I think it would be most effective without there being another person in there at all. You're just, I was going to say looking at yourself. Yeah. Ga- I mean, gazing up at your, at your own face over the, you know, heaving, grinding shoulder of <laughs> God forbid your partner has back hair because that's just a whole other, um, <laughs> but anyway, but yeah. So basically I guess, um, I do not relate to this at all. This one, if anything, I have found it like I do not like, I don't want anybody to like me. <laughs> that, does, that sounds a little nuts, but kind of, because like the thing that, okay, so something that doesn't really come up from what I skimmed of this, but that I've thought about just in like what I'm writing is something that can happen with women where they're just like genuinely like confused about whether they like a man or whether they are detecting a vibe from the man that the man likes them. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with this sort of dynamic? Have you seen it in the world? Am I imagining it? Is it just that I saw it on some sitcoms? Like do you know what I'm talking about at all? Or Yeah, no, I think that this is a real thing. And I think it goes back to the sense amongst many women that they are supposed to be like passive in, you know, they're, they're, they're the gatekeeper. They're the ones who are there yes, to say yes. yes or say no. But to I don't not- know, like I have always, yes. So I have always been somebody who like, yes or no. And then of the yeses would be like, okay, if somebody has an objectionable personality, then they can become a no. But like, I've never, I've never been somebody who could be like, I mean, yes, I too, am, you know, like long married and all of this and happily married and not, you know, like looking for, you know, whatever the men prowling brownstone Brooklyn or whatever. But my recollection, like in high school, I remember there was a guy who had interest in me and I remember sort of like thinking of him differently than my other male friends because I sort of felt like almost as if like, like, cause there was something going on, right. There was some sort of, there was sexual tension. Right. Mm-hmm. But then like, I just, when it came down to actually like going on a date date with him, I just couldn't get myself to do it. Cause it just like, it, it suddenly became very clear to me. Like, no, this is not somebody who would be in the yes pile. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody it was somebody I liked the fact that he was a guy meant that it seemed like vaguely possible, but like, it just, no, it was still, it, it was ultimately just, yeah no and and I think that there's just this sort of myth that women that that is what it is to desire as a woman is to be desired and that awakens something in you like a flower and it's like oh it's just no 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 and maybe maybe for some women it is but like to me I've never related to this at all and it's like uh 
yeah. So it just, I found it very heartening that a lot of <laughs> women also <laughs> don't relate to this. Uh, I'm much too conscious of, of what I want um, to be like that titillated just by the realization that somebody wants me. I, but when you mentioned this, um, you know, this high school experience, I flashed back to this experience that I had multiple times, actually, which, which means that I must have been doing something wrong. I, this is clearly like I'm the common denominator here. So clearly I was doing something. It's my fault that this happened. But um, when I was like a teenager, I, I I had a group of mostly guy friends and I was sort of like the token girl. And there was another girl who kind of hung out with us too. But um, I don't know. It was just, it was just easier. Uh, I, I was not super, I wasn't great at like, untangling the intricacies of female friendships they were very complicated like I I had a few girlfriends also but like my group was was dudes um but within this group periodically one of the guys would decide that he was interested in me and this happened um a few times like they took turns they took turns like having the crush on me the token girl and sometimes it was just like it was very casual and I wasn't even really aware of it until like much later one of them would be like oh I really liked you that summer or whatever but then there was this one incident where this guy decided that he was like just completely head over heels in love with me and could not live without me and um and it got really weird and bad and he ended up leaving over like in the middle of the night a paper bag with all of his most prized possessions on my front porch with a note about how like these things couldn't give him joy anymore if I wouldn't be with him oh my goodness parents found it oh no the worst that is the worst of the the teenage stuff yes the 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 living living with one's parents and uh, um I'm just remembering like my dad coming into the kitchen holding this bag completely <laughs> bewildered and he was like somebody left this on the porch oh, no. <laughs> anyway uh, um thanks for the opportunity to take that little trip down memory oh, lane. that's great that's great I mean I I did not Shocking as this must be to everybody who has, you know, seen pictures of me or even seen me in real life in more recent years. But I was not always the supermodel, you know. <laughs> no, but like I, I was not exactly like super sought after in high school, which was, I think, part of why this was so confusing for me. Um, my friends were mainly of the girls and ultimately came out to be or had already come out to be gay guys persuasions. Um, and some lesbians too, but I did not have a ton of <laughs> straight male friends to put it mildly. So like whenever I did, there would be this question, you know, and also I'd been at girls school until I was 13. So like if I was hanging out with a guy who even plausibly likes girls, <laughs> that was like an event. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's, we're all, we're all screwed up in our different ways, but yeah, I don't know. I think there's something like great about being a woman who just like, isn't bothered about if like I, I think it so here's where it's saying like I don't think in real actual lived life it's good to be like creepy whether you're a man or a woman right it's not good to be indifferent to another person not liking you back but there is something nice I think for women to just be like I'm gonna like this guy I know he probably doesn't see me in that way at all because like there's this myth right that like if men and women are friends that like that the man is secretly pining mm-hmm what if it's the other way around what if it's not at all you know what I mean like I don't know but I I just think that there's something to be said for the fact that like the secret pining is not something special that only men do 
Mm-hmm. And um, and I also have not like I- I'm like wearing the clothing I slept in, so like I have to think about the world just being a, a little bit. I mean, we'll get into this. We will get into the sort of um, middle aged mother question because that's going to be relevant to some of our other topics. But yeah, I mean, the the other thing I was just going to say is just, and this is maybe a little scooping myself, but whatever. I'm just going to scoop scoop away because there's more scoops, and it's not like this book is appearing tomorrow. Basically, like you have a lot more years that you can desire than for a woman than that you can be like conventionally walk down the street, head turning desirable. And that's just a fact. It's just a fact of life. And like, if you treat female sexuality as turning heads, like it's just so limited. Yeah. I have one other thing to say. I, this is maybe a little bit galaxy brained, but I think it's worth maybe mentioning Please. when we talk. I want, <laughs> whenever you say galaxy, we're like, yes, <laughs> go for it. I started saying that because of you. It's become part of my lexicon now. Um, but oh, I know that's so embarrassing. No, I like it. I, it, it's such a good shorthand for, you know, kind of preparing somebody for just like an insane thing to come out of your mouth. I love it. I love it. But um, what I was going to say is that I think, there's something about the way we articulate this idea of female sexuality as being primarily about being wanted by another person that makes the whole like sexual enterprise and particularly the the separate discourse about consent very fraught and very stupid and very like banging up against a brick wall because um you know we we're basically encouraging young women to not think of themselves as having desires to not think of themselves as the architects of you know of their own sexual desire or of their sexual lives um as to the point where you ask a, a you know a young woman like well what do you want and she's like i don't know you know she doesn't does no idea and um if you're trying to cultivate a, a kind of a yes means yes ethos in the sexual realm. You know, you really want to have young women capable of not just fathoming, but articulating their desires and that they have desires to begin with. Like, it, you have to acknowledge first that you have the thing before you can say what it is. So, mm-hmm. no, totally. But what did you make of the fact that the women on this whatever dirt website? We're like, it's better to desire. I mean, did you, were you surprised by that? No, I, I don't think it's surprising. I think that it's, um, I think there may be a little bit of a selection bias going on here where you have people who tend towards thinking, maybe not, maybe not just being thoughtful, but thinking in a certain way. Um, and so you're more likely to get people who are, who are taking that kind of angle on it. Mm-hmm. And then there's the Agnes Callard one, which is interesting. Oh God, I she said something absolutely insane, didn't she? Yep. Yeah. It, it it's just some sort of like philosophical. Um, I was I don't want to say Mad Libs because that's not quite right, but it's it's just a lot of um, she's she's thinking deeply while the grad student she's having whichever tryst with is off, <laughs> like doing her laundry or something. I'm just speculating. <laughs> anyway. That is really funny, yeah. To consider to consider people's answers in the context of what we know about their lives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, I asked a, a bunch of people in my life the desire question because I was curious, and and they all said um, that it was better to desire than to be desired. And one person I asked, he uh, replied by sending me a, an excerpt from East of Eden by John Steinbeck that was like 
I don't know. It was it was representative in a very interesting way of like kind of the the possibilities that are opened internally within a person by the act of desiring something. So, um, yeah, I think what I'm what I'm saying is that if you're a thoughtful person, this prompt tends to take you in interesting directions, but in the in the same direction as other thoughtful people, if that makes sense. No, it does. It does make sense. That totally makes sense. And I I just found it, like I said, heartening. And I was because I was worried that we would be very much in this kind of uh, moment of like, like the Barbie movie and where, you know, where the woman is the one who's the object of the interest and who has no interests of her own because she's just the physical embodied whatever. Yeah. So I thought this was um, reassuring. Yeah. Yeah. And a little, I was a little surprised, I think, because it's just like the, I just thought the discourse was so entrenched that it had to be the other way. But um, yeah. So I guess maybe the, this could be heartening also for the incels, right? Women are desiring too. Yes. Just whether they desire the incels specifically is a separate question. Um, Yeah. So should we move on to our next? I think we should. Um, before we move on, should we just do our brief announcement? I'm trying. To, I think it, sometimes it's better to do this up front than to tack it on at the end. Um, okay. So we are Feminine Chaos. We are a podcast. If you are enjoying this conversation and would like to hear more like it, we invite you to join us on Substack at femchaospod.substack.com, where for $5 a month, you will receive access to two premium subscribers-only episodes per month, as well as commenting privileges, open threads. We sometimes do AMAs. Um, We will asexually reproduce with you uh, if you want to come out to Connecticut and stomp (laughs) on a divot. That's That's for our patron saints of chaos, actually. Um, the, you know, the $20 a month folks, but yeah, uh, <laughs> sorry, I, I have taken no, myself, great. I've taken myself think, on a terrible mental journey here. I think that's great. And yes, please, um, check out our podcast in further depth. Yes. And also, and we never say this, but please, uh, rate and review us on Apple podcasts because like only two people have ever done this. And frankly, I'm starting to get a little miffed. <laughs> What? Yeah. I didn't know that. I, I didn't know that any had. So that's, um, on the one hand, hooray, somebody has. I never even thought about this. But yeah, yeah, more people should do that. Definitely. Yes, I agree. Um, and so now moving on, what do uh, what's going on in Brooklyn? What's in the water? Something is in the water in Brooklyn. And it is coming for women of a certain age and it is making them completely lose their minds in various ways and forces them not only to lose their minds but to write about it at great length and um yeah so i think we're starting with the with the um well i don't know i don't even know how to do this without like mentioning both of them up front let's see it's we're splitting this up between the Emily Gould essay is our public episode, right? And then mm-hmm. the polyamory is our private. Pre- pri- yes, private. that's where it gets. That's where it gets really private. Okay, so here's the deal: we're we're talking about two <laughs> two Brooklyn ladies, women of Brooklyn. Um, one is Emily Gould, who wrote an essay in the Cut. On, on Valentine's Day or the, on the day after? Yeah. Valentine's oh, yeah, Day? yeah. On Valentine's yeah, Day. Yeah. Happy Valentine's Day. Um, that was how she presented it on Twitter. Yeah. The other the other person that we're going to be talking about, but we're saving this for our um, 
for our premium episode is Molly Roden Winter, the author of the memoir More, which is about uh, an open marriage. And yeah, you know, we're just kind of in, well, not ambiguously, arbitrarily dividing up these topics because um, otherwise this podcast episode would be two hours long and nobody wants that uh, unless you're a fifth column listener. Sorry, deep cut. <laughs> But yeah, so so Emily Gould, Emily Gould on Valentine's Day published an essay that is ostensibly about divorce, but it's actually about a lot of other things, not just divorce. It, well, I mean, it's actually not about a divorce even because she decides not to get divorced at the end. Mm-hmm. At the end of the essay, I would not bet on anything particular for what comes after the end of this essay, right. but that's a separate question. I, I'm, rooting for, I'm rooting for them. I'm rooting for her and Keith. I, I hope they work it out. Uh, for a number of reasons I mean in some ways because I you know I used to be a like a big gawker reader and so I sort of followed Emily's career trajectory and like you know it's I don't know just having been sort of ensconced in that like media slash literary community I feel like they're the closest thing to a celebrity couple that I am like even remotely adjacent to so I just want things to work out for them yeah I'm wishing them the best as well um what happened, so this essay came on my radar in a very weird way, although I guess maybe not so weird when you consider how the internet works, which was that the men's rights folk of Twitter were just piling on, piling, piling, piling on Emily Gould, furious at her for being, for having cheated. She reveals in this essay that she cheated on Keith Gesson. It sounds like per her explanation, it was a one-off but nevertheless. And also with a yoga instructor, apparently, which, <laughs> well, you know, I, should, is that not self-hatred? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Internalized yoga instructor phobia, the worst thing. Um, yes. So basically she, um, all, all these people were really mad at her, whether they were men or just men's rights activists of varied genders. I don't know. I, I have learned my lesson not to assume that just because somebody comes across as a men's rights <laughs> activist on the internet that they are not, in fact, a golden retriever. Um, but basically, people were really mad. So I looked to see this essay and I thought, like, why are people mad? The, the, the people who are mad at this are mad at it for the wrong reasons. They're not, they shouldn't be mad at it at all. This is a woman who is taking the blame, who says that she did things wrong in her marriage and just in her life and is trying to do better. And she's sympathetic. She's empathetic. She feels her husband's pain and she knows where she wronged him and she's trying to do better. And she's not claiming that things are simple. She's not claiming that she had no, you know, legitimate grievances of her own, but she's, yeah, she's saying all the, like the reason there, this is something that does come up in some of the more intelligent commentary on this. The reason we know all the bad things she did is that she tells us this this is in the article it's not that you have to google it like she tells all the things about like drinking in the morning um in a restaurant so that she's spending too much money and then buying too much stuff for herself or just whatever like overspending and so we will talk about the financial aspects of this i want to i want to i want to press pause on this really quick and just um i think that we need to explain who Emily Gould is and what this essay is because we haven't yet. So I'm- I, I think so, but I just want to explain why people were mad. Although, but yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, but they, they need to know who she is. Okay, so who is Emily Gould? Okay, so do you want to give the, the Gawker backstory? 
I'll, I'll give the okay. backstory as best I can. Okay, Emily Gould, she, she was a media darling in her 20s. She was a writer. I can't remember if she was editor-in-chief editor or if she was just a like a very well-known writer, perhaps the best-known writer at Gawker. In the mid to late aughts, Yes, very much a sort of American apparel aesthetic, indie sleaze era personality. Yes, correct. That's exactly. Okay. That's exactly right. Okay, and she looked the part with the tattoos and just generally, yeah, yeah, very pretty. Uh, she was a, a, you know, when she was not writing, she was also a yoga instructor. So you know, hmm. hey, I know that life, um, <laughs> sort of. But she was one of the first famous bloggers, and she published. I think she did. She did publish a book of essays based on her blogging. Uh, she had this big feature on the cover of the New York Times magazine featuring her lying in a bed looking, you know, vaguely kind of come hither and cheesecakey. Hipster. That's the word that was that's somehow right. escaping me. This was when hipsters were the thing and yes. she was very it. And she was like, yeah, for at that at that moment, she was a sort of a literary sex symbol. Um, insofar as we have those in the liter- in the literary community. And her book initially sold for an enormous amount of money. She got like a two hundred thousand dollar book deal, which is huge and unheard of and good for her. Um, Then she became uh, the purveyor of a newsletter called Emily Books. I can't remember if she was also running like a book club. Um, Yes, I think there was a publishing house even, right? Didn't they put out books? That sounds right to me. She also was formerly an employee in publishing. I think she had come from publishing into into working at Gawker. So yeah, she she was always sort of like in straddling those lines between the media world in the literary world and not and not a super like not one of these people who like went to harvard and had this sort of pedigree like she went to college but she's not like um this sort of snooty aspirational this came up in some of the discussions of like how you classify her in the world like she was somebody who was a big deal in media but not like I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's making any sense. Yeah. So, I mean, so two things that she was famous for in this era. One was this post that she put on Gawker. And it was sort of, I want to say that it was like a, a damn breaking moment for a particular kind of personal branding, internet personality, like revealing things about your personal life that eventually took over more broadly and I think gave rise to a lot of the culture that we have today online. She wrote this post on Gawker about she how she'd broken up with her boyfriend and mm-hmm. it was like massive. People I mean people were talking about this like it was the Brangelina split, you know, it was it was very exciting. So there was that thing. The other thing she was famous for is this very unfortunate appearance on I think it was Larry King live um after she had been taken to task for the Gawker stalker feature on Gawker where people would just post, uh, they would send in tips of like celebrity sightings around the city. It was Jimmy Kimmel, apparently. Yeah. Somebody had sent in a sighting of Jimmy Kimmel saying that he had been, you know, intoxicated and loud and obnoxious at like some, I don't know, bar or restaurant or something. And Jimmy Kimmel, who is like the world's biggest whiniest baby, flipped out and was like, 
this is endangering my life and my family's life. And it's so terrible that you, you know, that they have this feature and like, what if some crazy person like knew that I was at this restaurant and came and tried to harm me or my family. And he was basically just mad that somebody saw him drunk in public and like said something about it. Um, and for the record, I 100% believe that Jimmy Kimmel was drunk in public. He seems like the type, but anyway, um, there was this confrontation between him and a couple of other guys and Emily Gould on Larry King Live, um, where she basically looked like a deer in headlights and had not either had not prepared or had not been prepared for what was coming. Um, Jimmy Kimmel basically like dragged her all over the place on live national television and told her she was going to hell and uh, all kinds of other things. So that is what Emily Gould was famous for. In the intervening years, let's say about 15 years since then, she was the purveyor of this newsletter. Um, she eventually took her newsletter into a different location, started writing more about her personal life. She has written a bunch of stuff about how bad she is with money, which is... Yes, this is going to be crucial. Is crucial. The story. Yes. Um, and... Also, I mean, she but she's since gotten married to Keith Gessen, who is also a literary figure. So, can I ask you just like a little a little interrupting question? Yeah. Was would you think of Keith Gessen as a more successful and famous writer than Emily Gould, a less successful and famous writer than Emily Gould, or equivalent? More successful, less famous. Fair enough. Okay. Yeah. That seems right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think he's a professor, right? In his... I don't know what his academic role is. Um, he's some sort of writing instructor. Like, he's not like tutoring high school students in writing, but like, I, I don't know that if he's like a professor. I have no idea. Yeah. I mean, I think he is like the kind of platonic ideal of the Brooklyn literary figure who also teaches writing at some institution of higher education. Like I just picture him wearing tweed. He is an, oh, so he is a real professor, like a, you know, big deal. He's, it says, according to Wikipedia, that he's an assistant professor of journalism at Columbia's journalism school. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that would be, um, I don't think it would mean that they're rich, right? but I do think it would mean that, that he's more he has more of a steady income than perhaps somebody with a newsletter. Yeah, he's he's doing well. He's also the brother of Masha Gessen. Yes, that's right. Who is, I think, more famous perhaps mm -hmm, than mm -hmm, either of these probably. people. So we have a, a media-adjacent family. So Keith and Emily got married. They have two children. Keith recently published a book about raising their first child, their son Rafi, which also is going to become salient to the impending conversation so all of this you know for for a little while they sort of appeared to be like the picture of literary domestic bliss and she would write regularly for the cut and like she never really kind of left the scene she she sort of aged into like a different type of women's journalism yeah. but she wrote a novel um that did not do super well. But so she's, you know, she's been trying to find her footing since she had this big breakout in her 20s that didn't end up making her into the established writer that she perhaps hoped she would be and that everyone maybe imagined that she would be. There was a point at which it seemed like she was positioned to join like Sloane Crosley and other other people of that ilk um, or maybe that she was going to become like the this generation's Joan Didion figure you know but that didn't happen she's been sort and of and didn't she also she also sort of complained I think that Lena Dunham 
was it stole her thunder? I don't remember. There was some sort of tension with Lena Dunham. I don't remember the exact thing. It had something to do with the being a voice of a generation possibly coming from Emily Gould. Am I imagining this? Uh, kind of. I mean, she mentions she mentions this in her essay, but it's more like it was something she said that was cringeworthy. And then she was really surprised and like kind of amused to see it said on television in Girls by Lena Dunham. If I could just like add a little to that. I mean, I think everything you said is true and you, I'm amazed at your <laughs> skills and remembering and co- and um, turning this into something coherent because it's like a real flashback because I would read Gawker and stuff at the time and I, I remember all of this, but very, very hazily. But I feel like the fact that, so she made, she, she had a book advance of $200,000 and she just basically spent it all and then was like, she didn't have money anymore. Right. And she wrote about that. And I think what's interesting about this, and I was thinking about this in terms of like, there was recently, there are these posts by a somewhat decompensating Eric Idle. Are you familiar, Eric Idle of Monty Python? I do know who he is. I guess people assume that he's rich because he was in Monty Python and surely, you know, he's a celebrity, but he, he just had to sell his house and he's like struggling or something. And I guess I thought this was interesting because I think there is this way that like people really do confuse um, somebody who's prominent in some field especially in a glamorous or creative field with like somebody who is even like middle class level stable and I think that oh that is that comes up a bunch um here Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's funny you mentioned that like I've encountered that phenomenon there's something about it's like if you if you know this person perhaps you've seen them on tv like once or you know you've read you've read things they've written you encounter their name periodically you imagine that they're that they're like basically rich and famous. I've I've had people assume this about me online. Nobody who knows me in real life could possibly. Oh no, I have totally no, I have totally had this. And the thing that about it is that I've had this like when I was truly, truly, truly starting out. So I would I had written like a few articles for the Atlantic for which online for which I was paid a hundred dollars um, U.S. dollars, whatever per article. At least it wasn't Canadian. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I feel like oh. I've, uh, what how bad to work um but yeah and people would be like "Ooh, like phoebe of the atlantic ooh, you know and i'd be like i'm a grad student who just made a hundred dollars um you know writing an article and like i'm happy to have written it. it it's helpful for my career but like i'm not sitting in a lofty perch somewhere and it certainly um was not funding anything <laughs> like yeah i mean i think that there's uh, that like also but just uh, and i think there's very little understanding of like what books pay and you think oh somebody's written a book surely they are a best-selling author who can just you know never work another day in their life and yeah I think there's just like a and I think I myself do not understand this about fields that I'm not involved in like I don't know what it means if somebody's been on a tv show like what do I know Mm -hmm. I would assume they're rich and they're probably wrong you know yeah um, so that br- this brings us all up to this essay, which um, was preceded. This is the last little bit of gossip that we probably need to to mention, even though she mentions it in the essay. Ooh, ooh can I do that? Can I do this? Part? Yeah, do this, this part. Is, okay, it's juicy. So there is a backstory, and you really, really like a recent backstory, and you need it to understand what the new essay is, because otherwise, it makes absolutely no sense why this essay exists, what the point of it is. Um, and what she's referencing kind of there there is a a prequel or whatever not a prequel there is a context thank you context she did in her personal newsletter a crowdfunding request for money to divorce her tyrant of a husband Keith Gesson who is trapped who has trapped her in um 
let me see. So it's no longer online. I'm sure you can find it, but whatever. Um, but I apparently blogged about it at the time because how like perfectly does fit with the stuff I'm writing about straight women. So she, um, she wrote, this was in, it seems like I wrote this October 10th, 2022. So this was a while ago, actually. She wrote that she will be taking an infinite hiatus from hetero marriage and monogamy. They are a trap for women, full stop. Sometimes a trap can be cozy. Mine was until it wasn't. Um, That was Emily Gould writing about Keith Gesson and requesting money to divorce him. And she mentions in this newsletter that she has become manic, like she's having a manic episode. So she mentions that there's something going on. Anybody who's at all familiar with Emily Gould and her financial challenges might perhaps question the wisdom of giving money to this, but she presents it very much in the spirit of men are pigs, men are trash, divorce that man now and gets money from among others. (laughs) We learn later, Liz Lenz, uh, Lenz, Lenz, Lenz. Okay. Um, who has a new book out that Emily Gould mentions in this, that's sort of a feminist case for divorce and for being a single mom. So Emily Gould is like, not just neck deep in this sort of divorce literature, but like producing it and producing it as in the unusual literary form. Like, I'm wondering, is this like a literary form, the GoFundMe, like, or whatever, this wasn't a GoFundMe technically, I don't think, but whatever, um, is, is crowdfunding is the letter for demanding people help you pay for your divorce itself because she's persuasive in writing, you know, Mm -hmm. like she is able in this writing to make a case. I don't know how much money she made um, doing this, but like it's written in a persuasive way that fits with other writing very much. Like when this appeared, this fit, like I blogged about it in the context of like other writing about divorce that this seemed like, Mm -hmm. because it fit, it made sense. So then in this new essay, she writes about that she's read all of this divorce stuff and you think, okay, this is going to be an essay where Emily Gould realizes that men are pigs. Keith Gesson being a man must be a pig. And that's not where it goes. And that's what, that's the sort of necessary backstory. Yes. And you wrote a really, I thought the best, the best take, the best take on the Emily Gould essay on your Substack about how it does break with form and and gives you something unexpected and frankly delightful thank you but i wish i i wish i had uh realized that i had blogged already about the or newsletter or whatever about the pre the um crowdfunding thing because it was even more the thing than i remembered it being like i remember that it was kind of in that spirit of like help me get out of this bad marriage but i didn't remember that she was like she'd had it with men <laughs> you know what mm-hmm. i mean i didn't remember that it was like that but it it was like that. Um, and now she she's sort of, she goes through all of this. She reads um, Nora Ephron. She reads, you know, all the like, well, not all. She reads a bunch of the um, sort of new and old women liberate self through divorce. Right, there's a Rachel Cusk book yes, in there. Yes, right. I've not, um, I've not read any of these books, I guess maybe because I've never um, been looking for divorce literature specifically, although I did watch the movie Heartburn, and I only remember that I did this because 
I told my mother that I was looking for like a fun romantic comedy and this is what she recommended. And I'll tell you, (laughs) it is not that. It is not fun. It is not romantic. It is really upsetting. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. So she really, um, and this comes up also like that, um, Isabel Kaplan, who wrote about her boyfriend, the writer who broke up with her for being a writer. That's very much also about heartburn and um, Efron. So that was interesting, a little twist. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so basically she's, Emily Gould recalls being like, you know, neck deep in this literature. Um, I don't know if she conveys the extent to which she contributed to this literature in this GoFundMe, but basically um, then she's like, actually, wait a second. I, screwed up (laughs) you know and she realizes that it's basically like she has some kind of epiphany that contrary to everything she's read contrary to the discourse that she's steeped in men are people also and her husband being one of them and she has these family responsibilities she has children she has a husband um and maybe they could try to like rather than just burn it all down in the name of some kind of like um mug slogan feminism maybe they can try to you know make their marriage work and it's interesting and so I had this take on Twitter and like the reason it kind of became a thing was that like Ross Douthat like favorably quote tweeted it and I do not think that has ever happened to me before <laughs> so I doubt it all I doubt this will ever happen to me again but what was interesting about this was that it's very like it's a conservative in some ways essay by the, you know, tattooed Brooklyn, you know, lady who's, you know, the the icon of the patron saint of of hipster women. Yeah, no. And there she is. She's going to make the marriage work and she's feeling for her husband and she's not just this is not like an anti-man <laughs> personal essay and they always are. So that's why this was so different and that was what I found so interesting about it. But then what I found so frustrating was that it's still read as like people are still mad at her, if anything more mad at her, because like she takes a lot of the blame, but she doesn't take all the blame. And I don't know. Like that's where I get a little lost. So the people who are sort of like who respond to her saying, I did all these terrible things by saying, Yeah, you did all these terrible things. It's like as if they found something, but yes. she's the one who that's the weird aspect of it to me. I don't know. I mean I have my my initial thought and it's uncharitable and probably you know too shallow better but my initial impression was just that everybody who is like raging at this essay in that particular way has like one brain cell to rub together it does often are we back at the in the walnut zone <laughs> yeah brains are the size of walnuts except, except that walnuts have wrinkles but um but no i so i did have uh sort of adjacent to your thoughts on this some thoughts of my own about what these essays like what people read them for and or at least what a certain type of person reads them for and what kind of itch they're trying to scratch when they do and I think that a lot of people read them in search of this kind of explicitly moral experience like they want a fable but they want it to be like racy and spicy so basically what they want is one of these like pulp stories that you know you used to see in you know in the mid-century it had a a picture of a woman on the cover like looking kind of slatternly with like a lot of makeup on and it would be called something like wild trash and then the (laughs) 
and then and then the the subtitle would be something like she couldn't wait for her divorce or you know whatever like it just it's it's like it's like some trash book it's smut and it's about a woman who's like sinning kind of gratuitously um and flouting society's expectations and then usually um these books like there would be some kind of cosmic comeuppance for her where she would i don't know like get syphilis and die in a pauper's prison or whatever and i think that people sometimes come to these stories because they think they're going to read something like that they think they're going to get an essay about a woman who sinned and like was debauched and engaged in all of this naughty naughty behavior and you're going to read about the naughty behavior in like absolutely graphic titillating detail and then at the end you're going to be served up a nice neat like wholesome moral um where she's going to either you know she's going to be either severely punished for her sins or she's going to become a nun or in this case like her husband's going to divorce her and find love with a you know 22 year old Iowan kindergarten teacher or something like that um <laughs> but i think that you know the the fact that this essay like it flouts the expectations of somebody who's coming at it thinking they're going to get like a feminist rah rah like men are trash you go girl yes queen divorce him kind of essay but it also flouts the expectations of people who think that they're going to be getting some kind of morality play where the bad woman is punished at the end and that's so interesting so yeah that's that's just my sense of it um that you know people want and this is why i think you get these responses where people are like she didn't even apologize <laughs> it's like the the essay is a 3000 word apology. I mean, it's it's not only that. It's, but yeah, people are taking way too much out of this part at the end where she says like what she's going to have to do better and what he's going to have to do better and pointing out that like she has a lot more work to do than he does. That's but the it, entire I feel like point. She never I feel like she never says otherwise and it's yeah, it, that is extremely the entire point. Um, yeah, people have like no sense of humor about this. Like they can't detect the the fact. I mean, maybe it's really I guess it is really dry, but still it's this is you know, we were talking about how like the desire question made us feel good about the future. The responses of people to this essay make me feel bad about the future because I think a lot of people like a lot of people can't really read anymore. Well, that definitely seems to be a lot of it. But I think there's also, I don't know whether this is like a yes and to the thing of like the sort of yas divorce him thing, but also like, I think there's an expected thing with personal essays that the thesis of a personal essay is what a nice person the essayist is. And in fairness to readers, most personal essays do this. And that's why you get the privilege disclaimers in them. That's why you have this, because the thesis is that how sensitive and kind and wonderful the author is. And even when there are flaws, it's like they're overcome, you know, or they're like, there was something systemic led this to happen or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's this kind of, there's this expectation that even a flawed woman, it's because patriarchy made her thus, you know? I have to say, I think that that was a blip on the radar, ultimately, because I'm just thinking back to things like Nora Ephron's essays. Like, oh, it was a blip historically, I guess. But I mean, it's been going, it's a blip that's been going on for like a couple decades at this point. Yes, that is true. Um, but I, I'm, what I'm kind of, I don't know if I'm disagreeing with you or maybe just like asking you about is like, do you think that 
do you think that that was in existence long enough for it to be a reasonable expectation? Because I feel like, you know, the Gould essay is very much in the vein of these previous essays, you know, where somebody writes something about how, like, how they kind of suck. And that's really the entire point. And it's... I think that is really different. I think that, yes, and I'll tell you why. Um, So this is something that I've, yeah, I've seen a bunch of examples of this recently, not as recently. Um, I mean, one I mentioned in my newsletter, and this is this Leslie Jameson divorce essay, um, where she does a privilege disclaimer about how like, not for a second, did she not think about how this would all be if she were like herself, but also less well off. And I was like, Oh, my goodness, like, not for a second. Uh, yeah. Well done. Also, that that essay was so bad. I'm sorry. I just have... <laughs> It was not good. It was not fun to read. Like, I mean, and maybe this is just a problem with that type of essay generally. I'm really I'm glad to be getting away from this as a trend. Yes, but but what I was going to say about this trend is that the trend I'm talking about is very much I don't know whether this would be in like an Atlantic article or um whether it's also sort of New York Times magazine, it's or just sort of anything like this where there's woman has personal life grievance. Step back. Here is why this is a big issue in society bolstered with statistics. Here is why if this woman were black, if she were poor, if she were trans, whatever, it would be even worse. Back to her personal anecdotes. You know what I'm saying? Like that Mm -hmm. kind of formula? Yes. I think that that's been a certain formula and you cannot have that formula and also be like, here is why I'm a (laughs) dirtbag. You know what I mean? Like you can't. These are just it, it, the thesis always has to once you're talking about society and societal issues of which you are just a little representative, because that's the stakes. It has to be universal, whatever. I feel like it, that like these things are interrelated and you can't be just talking about yourself. Um, like, Sorry, once you can't just be talking about yourself, you have to be presenting yourself in this very positive way. And then there's this question of just personal writing generally as like you aren't a fictional character. You are yourself. And in a sense, every personal essay, whether you want it to be or not, is going to function like a cover letter. It's presenting you to the world. And I think for somebody who isn't making a living specifically as a confessional journalist, you know, and like genuinely making a living that way, yeah, you know, you don't want what you put out in the world to be seem like a liability. And I think people are trained, even like the college essay trains people to present themselves in this very, you know, ideally in a subtle way, but still in a favorable way. And I think Yeah, I think it's not always so saccharine, but yeah, the personal essayists have been generally more like I I think people genuinely like a lot of readers see something like this and genuinely do not think it's possible that the reading would be anything other than and here's what that the point would be anything other than and here's why Emily Gould is a wonderful person. And that's why that the only thing they can respond is like, but see, she's not a wonderful person. And it's like a weird misreading, but I understand kind of where it's coming from. Yeah, I think I want to yes and you and just say that this is definitely a function of the expectation that's that's become prevalent within the past, I would say, yeah, probably 15 years, that every time you read an essay about a woman having some kind of problem, what you're actually reading is an essay about feminism, sexism, patriarchy, and and systemic whatever. Um, But prior to that, and perhaps moving forward, we may in fact be getting back to the radical notion that women are people. Yes, which you mentioned also, um, and I hadn't even seen that. And then I was like, oh my goodness, Kat also just 
blogged about this. Yes, yes. you newslettered about the Whisper Network, and that's great, and everybody should read it. Um, do you want to explain about Whisper Networks? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, whew, I'm trying to think how to how to jump from this topic. Well, I mean, we're talking about basically that women are not always well so this is the thing like women are not women are people right that's that's what we seem to agree on all of us hopefully hopefully the listeners too um well actually i think i know i think i do know how how to connect these actually because like the that go fund or whatever the crowdfunding newsletter mm -hmm. that emily gould did presented itself very much in that like shitty media men style of men are bad we know this we all know this us girls we all know mm -hmm. right and I think that what you're describing is kind of a similar tone. Yes. So this was um, something that I wrote partly because it was just something that I've, I'd been in and have been musing on and partly because it was like a little bit of a follow-up to this piece that I reported, which I talked about on our last premium episode, I want to say, um, where I thought for a moment, a one, one horrifying moment that I had stumbled into reporting a Me Too story, and then it turned out that I wasn't. Um, what I what I stumbled into was just like a lot of smoke with no fire. It was a lot of whispers about this man, and it was like there was this very interesting thing happening where people were like, "Oh, you know, he's the kind of guy that women warn each other about," and this has been an interesting thing. It's like this, this idea that we take very seriously when somebody is the kind of guy that women warn each other about that's part and parcel of this sort of like sacralization of the, of the, um, or sanctification of the whisper network where people imagine that if a bunch of women are getting together and like whispering about a guy, what they're saying is definitely true and definitely has a lot of merit. And I do want to just like poke a hole or two in that idea. And one of the things that I was thinking about with respect to like the shitty media men list um, and to this type of rumor mongering in general is that it, tends to stem not from the guy in question being an actually objectively terrible person like the guy who's being whispered about is usually not Charles Manson like maybe 0.05% of the time it's Charles Manson but mostly it's just some guy who was a bad boyfriend or a bad date to one particular woman and does that really say anything about him as a person or does it say something rather about what kind of a connection or what kind of a relationship he had with another person with whom he maybe wasn't a very good fit? Maybe he wasn't at his best. Maybe she wasn't at her best. Um, I don't know. I've, there's like a lot of guys on the shitty, uh, shitty media men list and who are subject to this kind of like, you know, whisper character assassination in general, who I know are either already are or are going to be perfectly nice husbands for somebody. And that's sort of where I've landed. Yeah. I mean, I think with, with the whisper networks, um, yeah, I, I guess I think there's like, it's this thing where because there could be value in sharing information through such channels, it becomes that there always is. Right. And I think there can be, I certainly think there can be. I think the problem though with whisper networks is that, it can function also just as kind of like signaling that you know what's what, even if you don't. It's like a way of showing that you're an insider. Like I remember a lot of tweets 
in like peak me too that were like we all know what what's happening mm-hmm. and I, I wouldn't even know what they're talking about you know what I <laughs> like, mean I don't like, know do I, didn't we? Get the I don't know <laughs> like I barely woken up today I don't know what you're talking about. but um yeah where it's sort of like everybody's gathered in some kind of chic environment and I don't know about it and that's where all this is happening and yeah but also this idea that like things can be gestured at where you have no idea the type of thing and that's another problem like somebody is bad but what kind of bad makes a big difference and mm-hmm. um we all know that so and so is bad like isn't useful as it, it it's different to say like we all know that so and so did such and such and then you can try to assess whether you think that was a credible accusation you know but like I remember just a lot of it not being clear what the thing even was. And Mm -hmm. I remember just a lot of learning which are the bad men and not really knowing why. And I think that that's, yeah. And then it makes it very hard to take seriously the, you know, there's this sort of crying wolf aspect of it where like there are men who are rapists and should be avoided. And how are you going to know which they are if the man who, you know, said, well, you see it, you know, (laughs) like, is lumped in with that, you know? He, he said gals, and we can't have that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that that for me was a lot of it with the Whisper Network discussions, because it seems like it's just one of these things, like it can be useful. It isn't always. And um, to insist that something is always... And also people just want to take each other. I mean, it's like anything with well, the call-out culture in general. Like people always want to take each other down for all sorts of petty reasons. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, to assume that women would not be part of that... Um, bit of humanity is a little silly. I think a lot of this stuff, unless you subscribe to the notion that basically all men are fundamentally trash, um, and it's, it's just a question of like what kind of trash he is, basically. It's not if, it's just what sort. Um, then you, if you, unless you subscribe to that, then you have to kind of get granular on the question of like what makes somebody, quote unquote, the type of guy that women warn each other about or that women whisper about because I mean, there, there are things that a man can be or can do that one woman or one group of women is going to find atrocious and intolerable, but that another might not. And the thing about this that bothers me is, is not just that it's not fair to the men, although of course it's not, um, but also that it. There's something about the way that this worldview takes stock of women and assumes that we can just kind of like substitute this hive mind assessment of a, a person's worth or a person's character in lieu of like actually engaging with individual people and forming our own judgments about them and like and deciding that. Uh, you know, a con- on a kind of individual basis. Um, I don't know. I, I, it just, it seems to me like it takes a sort of a low view of women's ability to like have thoughts and feelings and discernment of their own. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it makes it seem like it's a collective decision, very, very sort of high school idea of like whether or not you go out with him should be what your friends think. Yes, exactly that. I guess we agree. <laughs> Um, well, do we have any, do we have anything else to say on the topic of, I mean, the only other angle we haven't talked about, and I feel like we could kind of sort of talk about it and set it aside fairly quickly, I think, is the whole, is it unethical to read about somebody having a nervous breakdown or mental illness 
if they have, you know, if this is an adult writing about herself and getting paid to do so and writing, it's going to be a book, this essay, it's going to be part of a book or Mm -hmm. the inspiration for a book, whatever. There's going to be a book version of this. Um, Is this, is she being exploited by some entity? Um, And we also didn't talk about like why not fiction, like why it's not fiction. I mean, I guess like, so the, the mental illness aspect, I feel like, I, I would just say, like, she knows what she's doing. She's There are people who historically have been, you know, exploited by publications in this way. I don't think that's really that pertinent here. I don't know whether you think differently for this, but... No, I don't know either. And I mean, the, I've only seen one person suggesting that... I've seen a bunch of it on Twitter as well since, oh, yeah. Okay. Um, I'm inclined to take Emily Gould at her word that this is the life she wants. You know, she mm-hmm. she wants a life where she is a writer. Um, she wants to write this type of work. And I think the thing is, this is where I feel a little bit bad for her because I don't know that this is actually, like, if she could have chosen anything, any form for her literature to take. I'm not sure that this is what she would have chosen. I think maybe she would have preferred to not kind of eviscerate herself for the pleasure or perusal of an audience. Maybe she would have rathered be a novelist. Um, but the thing for her, and and I think she says this quite directly uh, in one of the essays of hers that I read. Um, maybe it's something about how like when she was trying to, she was trying to write a novel. Um, she had moved on from her, from her blogging life because her, her first book kind of flopped that without being able to insert herself into her work like regularly that it, it wasn't there for her. The muse didn't show up for her. She could not write the other way. And I think there is something a little bit tragic about that in that you know it's like having a gift that you didn't really want or like having a gift when when you would have preferred that it take a very different form um but i would say she's an adult she has clearly decided that she's cool with this trade off you know with with allowing um her life to be kind of a fodder for for public discussion and public consumption and given that, like, I wish her joy. <laughs> I hope that it works. That that seems fair. That seems fair. Yeah. I don't have anything else. I think we're good with, with this. Um, and we will we will be present in spirit, if not person, since we do not know her personally, if they ever renew their vows, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I, I for one, will be uh, awaiting my invitation. They can do it on the polo field after they finish stomping the divots. Sounds good. Has this been Feminine Chaos? I would think so. Okay. Thank you for joining us. Bye. Bye.